During the summer, we love the summers here. Um, part of the reason for that is because we are a beach community. And um, I always enjoy the, the flow of traffic in the summer. You know, it's, I'm always a little sad because we have a little more space in our pews um, for good reason because we have a lot of missions teams out. Um, like we said, 30 plus people in Kentucky, folks about to uh, uh, go out to, to Kenyan. And then we have uh, several folks who are getting in the shoot for Ghana. All you Ghana people, remember, you're up next. We'll be praying for y'all pretty soon. But we also get a lot of visitors in the summer. And so you may be here in Virginia Beach, uh, going to our fine beach here or over in Sandbridge and said, man, I just want to go and worship somewhere. The Lord led you here. If that's you, welcome. Um, you're also asking yourself right now, hey, does the pastor usually preach in flip-flops? Um, the answer to that is he does when he forgets his socks, okay? So I literally forgot my socks today, and this is the only thing I had in my office. I was like, oh, well, here we go. But I would have you know this, if that concerns you, that this is biblically approved footwear, okay? So I'm all right. The only problem with flip-flops, though, is you guys know me when I preach. I've never understood this about myself, but it's not just me preaching, but my body preaches as well. Um, and sometimes my, my body will preach faster than flip-flops can move. So if I have like a Jimmy Buffett moment and I, uh, you know, I blow out a flip-flop or one goes flying, just cover up and uh, we'll be okay. Uh, today, though, I have, what I have for you is a very, very simple sermon. Um, early on in ministry, I used to think, man, you know, I've got to wow people and amaze people with big words and, and a whole lot of incredible thoughts they've never, never, you know, come into their minds before. But the older I get and um, the, the more I listen to a couple of guys who really minister to me, every preacher has a preacher. One of mine is Tim Keller. But I'm amazed by um, guys that I admire and who really preach well because they keep it simple. Um, Jesus did not come and lose people when he spoke. He came and he, and he spoke their language. And so today I have an extremely simple sermon. Um, it's so simple one of our children could have got up to preach it. So I, I'm going to start just so that you know I have some intelligence. I'm going to start with something technical, okay? Now after this, we're, we're done with the smart stuff. But I want to I uh, start with a little translation scrutiny this morning, okay? Um, there's a, a verse of Scripture that's very familiar to all of us. Um, in the NIV, this verse says this. It says that we who are strong, we ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Okay? We've, most of us have heard that before. Sounds really good, nice and holy. But the problem is that this is one of the few times in our New Testaments, there aren't many, when people who translated from Greek to English, they kind of missed it, okay? Um, it, it's a small miss in the scheme of things, but the impact of the miss, it, it's pretty profound. We read this passage and we think, okay, well, you know, in light of that, Romans 1, uh, 15, 1 in the NIV, NLT, uh, New King James, most of these, th this verse is telling me that if I am strong in Christ, that I need to put up with or I need to tolerate people who are weak. The problem is in, in, in the Greek, that, that's not what it says. In the Greek, it doesn't say that we are to bear with the weak. It literally says we are to bear the weak. That means to carry them. Uh, it means to, to take them up. And, and literally carry them away from their dilemma and their distress. So you see, it's only one word. It's just a with. 
But man, that width really changes things for us. So in other words, when we read this passage, the first thing that came to my mind and my beautiful wife's mind was, hey, doesn't that sound just like the parable in Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about the man who had a hundred sheep, right? Had a hundred sheep, loved them, cared for them. 99 of them were safe. 99 of them were healthy, no worries about the 99, but there's this one, this one that's wandered away off onto a ledge, onto a cleft. This one is in distress, it's in danger, it's a whole lot of trouble. What does the man do? He goes off and he finds that one. He gathers it up in his arms and he returns it back to safety. That's what Romans 15, 1 is telling us. And so what we have to realize is this is not an appeal for Christian tolerance. This is all about getting involved in the rescue mission of Jesus Christ. And so when we rightly translate that passage, we learn three things. Number one, the lost and the weak out there in our world, they are not a spiritual nuisance to God. They matter greatly to Him. Um, For us, we as the church, we have got to enter into their distress. We've got to get good about bearing them away, carrying them back to a place of spiritual safety. And and when we do these things, what, what are we on? We are on the mission of God. We're not living to please ourselves anymore. I said all that, now hold on to that because you're going to need it today, okay? Let's pray. Father, during worship, uh, you, you, you spoke to my heart very profoundly. And um, you said that you don't see things like I see things. And you don't hear the way I hear. You don't think the way I think. And when it comes down to it, you don't, you don't go... Uh, to all the places I go, you're moving in a completely different direction. And so, Father, for myself today and for my brothers and sisters, we offer you our eyes. We offer you these ears. Lord, here are these minds, and Father, our feet. Here are our feet. Today, in Jesus' name, would you heal? And would you use these for your purposes today, in Jesus' name, as we hear your word? Amen. All right, have, uh, have you ever had God clearly call you to something? I wanna see a show of hands here. Has, have you ever had a time in your life when you knew God was calling you to something or, go, or, or to go somewhere? Okay, lots of hands in the room, okay. Um, but when you got down to that thing, what you discovered was nothing but closed doors, dead ends, and it was like bridges were out. Have you ever had, please tell me it's not just me. Has anyone else ever had that experience before? You look up and you say, Lord, I'm so confused and I'm so frustrated. I don't know what this is. Are you punking me? I didn't even know you punked people, God, but what is going on here? I know you called me. I know your heart is in this, but God, what is going on? Well, if you've ever had that experience, this is how Paul and Silas felt at the beginning of their second missionary journey, okay? They felt just like this. Uh, it's Acts 16, 6 through 8. I'll read the start of this for you. They, Paul and Silas, traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the Word of God in Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Messiah, they headed north to Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Messiah to the seaport of Troas. 
By the way, yes, I did have to look up a few of those words for pronunciation, okay? Sometimes you wonder that, but I did. Um, here are, are Paul and Silas, and these are, these are two men, and they are on a mission from God, okay? So, so they are heading off on their second missionary journey for God. This is all from God. And Paul especially, who's been out before on missions trip, the first one ever, he has had people stand in his way, okay? We read about some of that persecution, opposition, hey, get out of here, don't listen to what this guy has to say, out of town as fast as you can, we're going to stone you, kill you. They have had, he has had specifically, people oppose him before. But Paul has never had God stand in his way like this. God, God is, or, or Paul has never had God throw up a roadblock and, and God stand in his way. And so here they are, they're going out, and they're going to take the word of God to two unreached people groups, okay? The people in, in the two places that they are prevented, nobody's ever heard the gospel before. This is a glorious, grand, noble things, but, but both times God throws up a roadblock, and you've got to realize for Paul and Silas, you know, we read, well, they went over here and then they went over there. For them in that culture, in sandals, right? This is months and months of journeying. They don't get from point A to B just like that. It, months of journeying. But twice, right when they get to the place where they're going to go share Jesus Christ, the border's closed. Both times, they are opposed, blocked, detoured by the same God who called them to go out in the first place. And y'all, if you're Paul, this is enough to make you want to start using bowling words in the house. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is enough to rattle your cage. And, and, and think about this. Silas has never been out with Paul before. So Paul starts off, hey, here we go. We're going there to preach the word of God. We're going there. Paul's, Paul's looking up saying to God, Father, I'm looking like a fool here in front of this newbie. Silas is probably thinking, you know what? No wonder John, Mark, and Barnabas deserted you. If this is what it's like to travel with the great Paul, dude, get a new GPS. I feel like one of the, the children of, of, of Israel wandering around in the desert here. They're at a very frustrating place. But now when things are at their very worst, in verse 9 and 10, God shows up like he always does, and he speaks. That night, Paul, and, uh, Paul has a vision, and it's a vision of a Greek man he's never seen before, and the man is pleading with him, he is begging for him to come to Macedonia. And it's obvious here that Paul, at least, has seen the, the, the very first Star Wars movie that we saw in 1977, New Hope, because he puts the pieces together. This is like the scene where R2-D2 projects that hologram of Princess Leia for Luke Skywalker. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Paul and Silas conclude, oh, this, I get it. I get it. This vision is calling us to go somewhere else and preach the Christ. Go to Macedonia. So Paul and Silas, they, they, they uh, sail off to Troas, and we discover with one little tiny small word here that they go with a special guest. And the special guest that goes with them is actually the guy who wrote the book of Acts. Luke's, Luke joins them. And the reason we know Luke joins them is because suddenly for the first time in Acts, we read the word we. Luke will begin to speak of the rest of this little adventure using the word we. And so Luke writes, he said, look, we did this and we stayed in Philippi and then on the Sabbath, we did what Paul is known for doing on his mission trips. We went out. But the interesting thing in Acts 16 is that they did not go to a synagogue. 
And, and haven't we learned from, from Paul before that he always goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath? I mean, this is his thing. But the absence of a synagogue tells us something about this area of Philippi at this time. It is unreached for Jesus Christ. It is so unreached that there is no synagogue there. there there's not even a Judaic presence in Philippi. You know how we know this? Because to construct a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men according to Judaic law. There is no synagogue. So, you know, we ask the question, how godless was Philippi? Well, that's the answer. It's that godless. There aren't even 10 godly men to be able to build a house of worship for God. But you know what there are? Well, you know who happens to be there? There are some worshiping women. And these worshiping women have found a place to worship. And it is down by the river. And so Luke writes, we found some women gathering for weekly worship by the river. So Paul, Silas, and I, we went down to these women and we did our thing. We preached the message of Jesus Christ. Now, with those women that are gathered down by the river, there was one named Lydia. Beautiful name. Parents, you want to name your kids something amazing? I suggest Lydia. Great name. Yes. My daughter Lydia is probably in here going, oh my gosh, she's doing it again. But there's this woman, Lydia, who's there. And um, Lydia is a worshiper of God. And, and what that tells us in the text is that she, she is a woman who has a conviction that there is a God. She's interested enough to begin to, you know, enter into the stream of worship. She probably lives a little bit like she, she believes there's a God. Perhaps there's a little bit of Jewishness even in her life. But she doesn't know God fully. Until verse 14, when Luke writes, as she listened to us preach the message of Jesus Christ, her heart opened and she believed. And we might want to say, well, how much did Lydia believe? Here's how much Lydia believed. She believed so much that she said to them, Paul, Silas, Luke, you have got to come home with me to my house, and my family has got to hear about this Jesus Christ that you just preached to me about. So they go there. They preach the message of Jesus to this family, the whole family comes to Christ. There's a huge baptism, it's just a family baptism right there. And I guarantee it was followed by a cookout or a potluck because that's what we do and we celebrate in the faith. I'm sure they started this for us. So they do this and it's just this beautiful moment. And then following this, Lydia insists that the guys then stay with her. You're new to the area. You don't have any lodging. This is not the kind of place where, you know, you just want to, you got to watch your alleys around here. You guys come and stay with us. And the guys push back a little bit. Oh, no, Lydia, we don't want to be in, on imposition to you. No, Lydia, we didn't come here, you know, to, 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 to score a place to, to, to live for a little while. We just came to preach Christ. So they push back. But the thing about this woman, Lydia, is that she is no pushover. She's one of those kind of women. She, she, you know, it's one of these, I know that you did not just say no to me. So here's what you guys do. You holy men, you go over there, you unpack, you wash up, dinner is at six, you come to my table hungry, you got me? And the guys are like, you know what, I think we're staying at Lydia's house, amen. <laughs> so they do, they stay with her. And there's just this beautiful, rich fellowship. Not a whole lot of Jesus in the area, but you know what, it's in that home. A few days later, Luke writes in verses 16 through 18, 
the guys head over to the place of prayer. And just so you know, in the span of a few days, a synagogue has not been built, okay? So they're probably heading back down to the river to meet with these women, now a few more people for worship, and uh, something unusual happens. They, they meet a slave girl. And uh, let me just stop here and, and just say this about slavery in the New Testament. When we hear the word slavery, we think of U.S. colonial slavery, okay? Now, slavery in any form, one human being belonging to another, it's not a good thing, okay? Anytime we see the word slavery is not good, but biblical slavery in the New Testament was often very different from U.S. slavery um, in in a couple of ways. Uh, One, New Testament slaves were often highly respected by their masters. They were treated very well. Um, they, were, they were often dearly loved. In, in fact, most New Testament slaves were pretty much family. That describes most New Testament slavery situations. It does not describe this one, okay? Luke describes for us a young woman who is a slave in the worst possible sense. Number one, she is imprisoned in chains. She is enslaved by the devil, Luke tells us that she is inhabited by a demon. This is another small beef with with English translations. There might be two Bibles in the room that tell us what kind of demon it is, but Luke in the Greek, he describes the demon for us. He tells us the demon is actually a, a pathunos demon, and that translates to a python demon, okay? Now, let me tell you where this comes from. In Greek legend, mythology, culture, Uh, people believe that the god Apollos could inhabit people with a python spirit. And what that python spirit would do is it would give them the ability to forecast the future, to read minds, to tell fortunes. Now, whether or not that is urban legend of the day or whether that's exactly right, folks, that describes our girl here. Here she is She is entrapped by the devil. She is filled with the demon. She has a python spirit that makes her psychic. She can see the future. She can read minds. She can read fortunes. Again, why? Because she is filled with a nasty spirit and is a slave to Satan. Now, second of all, she is a slave to two earthly masters who are not treating her well, okay? For them, this girl is nothing but a meal ticket, okay? She is a means to an end. They care nothing about who she is as a person. They are using her fortune-telling abilities to, uh, to, to get rich. She's just a meal ticket. Luke writes, she began to follow Paul, Silas, and I, shouting at the top of her lungs in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Now, we read that, we hear that in the text, and we think, well, you know what? I mean, she's inhabited by a demon. That's a horrible thing. Satan is behind this, but This actually is not the train wreck that I thought it was going to be because she is telling the truth. These men have come to tell people how to be saved. Uh, They're representing the Most High God. First of all, let me say this. Advertisement by Satan is never good, okay? 
Even if the words are true, you do not want Satan marketing your your evangelistic crusade. But we read that and we think, you know, I I guess she has an evangelistic demon, you know? I mean, who knew that type of thing happened? But that is not what's going on here, okay? Let Let me describe to you firsthand exactly what is happening here in this moment. They come across this girl. She's shouting at the top of her lungs. As soon as I read this, I went, oh my gosh, Steve, 1984. In 1984, I was in 10th grade. Please don't do the math. Um, and, and I went on my first mission trip with my youth group, okay? We went to the Dominican Republic, and we were going to help build a church. There would be teams coming all summer. Each, each team would build a, a different section of the church. So we were the, the, the first wave. We're going to build this church. We're going to do a little bit of VBS with some of the kids that gathered there. And in the mornings, we were going to do a, a, just a bit, like maybe 20 minutes of evangelistic open-air preaching. So I go on this mission trip, and on the first day at the work site, a demonized man showed up. Now, you might say, well, well, Steve, how did you know he was demonized? When you meet somebody in the third world who is possessed by a demon, there is no question about it, okay? This man showed up, and he was demonized, and the first thing he did was he began, so much like this passage, he began to call people over to us. Now, he only spoke Spanish. I don't know much, but I do remember, venga, aquí, venga, aquí, you know, just in this wild look, you know, hair all over the place, half-dressed, okay? And, and I'm giving him credit to say half-dressed, but he's calling all the people over to hear us. It is such a similar situation. And at first to me, I thought, you know, I shouldn't say this, but, but this is kind of funny, well, it, it was not funny for long because this dude kept this up all day long. We were out there for 10 hours, and he's just calling people over to us. And I tell you, by the end of the day, man, I had a headache that Excedrin, Aleve, I mean, this guy was driving us bonkers. Well, the second day we go out, and we, and we, we do a little bit of street preaching, just a few minutes here, we do a worship song. This guy, after we're done, he still continues to call people all day long, but now he piles up cinder blocks that we're not using. He stands on them and he begins to mock preach. I don't know what he said, but he's preaching in exactly the same fashion that we were out there speaking the the, the word of Christ. Finally, on day three, this guy is in a frenzy and he's calling people all day long. He's, you know, he's uh, on cinder blocks preaching, but he's racing up and down the work site, spinning around and dancing and just being, being absolutely crazy. Finally, finally, my youth pastor had enough. And I saw him, it just snapped in him. He looked at that guy and he said, in Jesus' name, stop it. Now, here is a lesson on the power of the name of Jesus, okay? My youth pastor only spoke English. This guy only spoke Spanish. But when he said, in the name of Jesus, this dude froze like he had been hit with a freeze ray out of a Star Trek show, a stun gun. The guy just froze. And so what we did then was we got a translator, and we prayed a prayer of deliverance over the man, and he was set free. It it was an incredible moment. And then he he accepted Jesus Christ. And for the rest of the the, the two weeks that we were there, he joined us on the work site. He was a part of our worship. We even had somebody just discipling him all day long. This guy was so brand new in Jesus. He had been so full of Satan and just all kind of demonic insanity. But here he was just full of Jesus. 
And that's exactly what happens to our slave girl in Acts 16. Luke writes, she cried out, shrieking day after day, following us wherever we went until verse 18, Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And instantly the demon left her. I want you to know when Paul does this, and this is something else you can't meet, meet, miss in the Greek text, Paul is not angry with this woman. Paul is not going, you know what, she is such an unholy pain. I'm just gonna throw a Jesus name on this woman and shut her up. He, he is not, he's not angry with her. He is distressed. He is highly concerned over her torment. And, and he knows what name freedom is in. So finally, he just commands that demon, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And this young woman is as free as she can be in this moment. She is free from the kingdom of darkness this demon has left her. She's also free from these slave masters, and I'll tell you why, because they just lost their meal ticket. She is of no value to, uh, to them whatsoever. So this girl has gotten set free, and when you read church history, you know, then some supportive text, she goes on, according to legend, to become a player in the church. This is a woman who, man, she has been, she has been to the depths of darkness. She ascends to the heights of the life and the light of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the end of the story, but that's where I'm stopping today, okay? Because I want us to go all the way back to the beginning for just a minute, to verses 6 and 8. And I want to pick that question up that we asked about Paul and Silas. Why in the world did God prevent them from going to Asia and Bithynia? For, why did God do this? You know, these guys had such a great plan. Why couldn't they carry out their plan to, to, to share Jesus Christ to the masses in Asia, to go down to the south and, and, and share Christ to the crowds of people there? Why did God detour Paul and Silas? The answer is very, very simple. It's because in Acts 16, God is not thinking about the masses. God is thinking about the one. God is thinking about the individual. In other words, Paul and Silas cannot go up here and preach to everybody and go over there and preach to everybody because Lydia and the slave girl do not live there and there. She lives right here. That's why God calls them. And so Paul and Silas, they run into a very stark reality that, you know, we, we call ourselves believers. We call ourselves followers, but we're real quick to come up with our own plan and just decide what we're going to do. But this is his work. This is God's work. We've, we've got to do it according to His plan. We have got to be led by His Spirit. We've got to be on His clock. We've got to be aimed at God's target. And the bottom line is that day, God's target is a woman named Lydia. In Acts 16, it is a woman named Lydia who is so close to the kingdom of God, but at the end of the day, she's still lost. Also on God's mind, that day is a slave girl, a slave girl who, who is just a lost cause. She's just trapped in so much darkness. She is on God's mind. But the truth of it is, neither one of those females has any chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ unless Paul and Silas, the only two missionaries on assignment unless they go to her. 
Neither of these women will hear the good news of Jesus Christ unless the Spirit of God leads these two men there. See, if God does not detour them, if he doesn't roadblock them, these two women stay lost forever. And so this is why God does what he does. You know, for you and I, there are Lydia's everywhere in our life. There are people who are so close to saying yes to Jesus. They have a heart interest. You might not even know it, but there are so many Lydia's all around us. And there are also a whole lot of enslaved people around us, people who are really caught in the kingdom of darkness. I tell you this, today in America, we need the church to be Paul and Silas. Oh, we need to be a people led by a spirit, able to be redirected at a moment's notice. Because see, the truth of it is, and I think we ought to tell the truth in this room, the truth of it is one of the great sins of the church in the United States of America is we, we just play way too much ghetto in the church. Now, when I say ghetto, don't be thinking about good times. You know, good times, anytime you get, you know, it's not that good, to, not that ghetto. But, but, but according to the true definition of ghetto, you know what a ghetto is? A ghetto is when people of common lifestyles and common culture and common conditions, they have all this stuff in common, they gather together and they build real high walls and they keep themselves close and they keep everybody else out. There's a lot of that that goes on in the church of Jesus Christ today. I'll make a confession, I love monasteries. I've only been in a few, but I love the peace of a monastery. I, I, I love the pace, even though I run around here like a jackrabbit. I love the pace of a monastery. I love the feel of it. I, I love the, the sweet greetings in the hall, the ability to pray at a moment's notice and meditate. I love a monastery. But the church of Jesus Christ is not a monastery. It's not meant to be a monastery. I'll tell you another group of people I love. I love the Amish. I've been up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania love the vibe. I've been up to Ohio. My parents lived right on the edge, on the outer edge of the Amish country up there. Biggest Amish settlement, you know. Love the Amish. But we are not meant to be Amish. We are not meant to seal ourselves away as the church of Jesus Christ and preserve our culture. Something else we are not meant to do as believers today is we are not meant to follow the pattern of current evangelicalism in this country, which is to just go from program to program to program, just addictive programmic cycles, which really are, back to Romans 15, 1, they really are all about us. That's a nice way of saying, church, we have got to stop exercising so much control over our spiritual schedules. Man, we are meant to be pilgrims. We're meant to be led to be moved. I'll tell you this with Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas at the beginning of, of Acts 16, they're not wrong to have a plan. You know that? They've got a plan of what they are going to do. There's nothing wrong with them having a plan to go preach to two unreached people groups. It's not wrong to have a plan as long as God can shepherd them in another direction along the way if he wants to. And that's what we see with our brothers here. It, it, it's not wrong for them to want to preach to groups of people like they want to, as long as God can divert them and take them to go and preach to the one. So it's all about what we talked about last week, surrender, availability, 
openness, willingness to God. You know, this is all about us believing what we pray and what we preach and what we sing. You know, we, we call Jesus Lord, Master, and Guide. You know, a lot of times when I do that, I'll say, oh, Lord, you're my master in everything. You know, I'll sing that and I'm like, yeah, Lord, but you know, I think if I do inventory, there are a lot of things that I am the master of. I am the Lord of in my life. The truth of it is we need to be available to his leading all day long every day. I finished the sermon up on Friday. And so I did something I, I, I should have done, but it's one of those things that we say we probably shouldn't have done. I said, Lord, you know, I want to live what I preach. God, I, I just want to make myself available to, to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. So I pray that prayer. And then um, on Saturday, Jane and I went over to the grocery store and there's really nobody in the grocery store. So there are two checkout people and one's helping the other one. The one's ringing up, you know, uh, I guess they do it with one hand, I don't know. Oh no, they scan now. Yeah, but uh, we're in the 21st century. So she's scanning all the items and the other uh, checkout girl, she's bagging all the groceries and these two are having the best conversation. They're having so much fun. And what had just happened before we got to the checkout line was this really Okay, and I, guys, I can say this, okay? This really, really good-looking police officer just walked through. Um, he's, he's about 6'3 and just cut and chiseled, you know? So he goes walking through the grocery store, you know? He's off to get something. And he had a walk like that, too. I mean, he, and I was like, hey, that, you know, it's, that, that dude's pretty cool. So this one, <laughs> this one checkout lady, she's probably in her 60s, she says, oh, honey, mm. you know? <laughs> We don't do this in church, but she's like, mm, mm, mm. And so I get tickled, and she goes, oh, I just wish that man would come over here and give me a hug. Oh, girl, all I need is a hug from that man. But you know what? He ain't got time to hug me. And so right then, our line got too long, and she said, she said okay, I'll leave you to it, to the other checkout girl. And she said, um, y'all people in the back of the line, come over here, and I'll check you out at the service desk, and, since you only have a couple of items. So they check out, and the Holy Spirit nudges me. And I'm like, oh, okay, Lord. And so I know what he wants me to do. So I go, okay, well, I tell you what, if you work it out, I'll do it. So she's checking people out. We're checking out right when our groceries get bagged. The, the, the lady at the express thing, she is finishing bagging that lady's groceries. And right when I got beside her, we're going out the door and I said, Jane, hold on a second. And so I stopped and I turned to the woman and she looked up and I said, excuse me. And she said, mm-hmm. And so I... I said, I heard what you said earlier about that man who wouldn't give you a hug. And she goes, oh, I know. And I said, come here, honey, I got one for you. So I gave her this <laughs> great big hug. And she just was filled with so much joy. And then she doubled over with laughter. <laughs> and you know, all of her coworkers were like, this is a crazy white man, you know? And the lady who's being checked out, she just kind of, she kind of snickers. But, it, but it, and here's the thing, that, that was the end of it. I didn't preach to her about Jesus Christ, but it was like God was just saying, I just want you to be available to love people. And, and sometimes in that moment of love, you're going to have to, ha you're going to have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. That moment of love and kindness, it's going to allow you to tell people exactly who I am. Sometimes it's going to let you just tell your story of, of who I am to you. Sometimes you're just going to drop love on somebody like that, and you are setting them up for the person who's coming 15 minutes later. And so church, I just want you to know, we talk about being Paul and Silas. I'm not talking about, you know, have a 19-week Bible study and, and memorize 14 different things. It really is just about saying, you know what, God, I want to be available. And especially during these days when we look out and politically, I'm not, I won't even comment, you know, but, but racially, tensions are so high. 
I tell you one thing, it, it's just like we said last week, the only answer for the mess of this nation is the love of God expressed through the people of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so I just challenge us all to, to, to really embrace this one word in Scripture that pops up over and over again. It, it's a word called neighbor. Um, the Bible talks about one another all the time. You know, it says, love one another, be good to one another, bear one another's burdens. Whenever it says one another, it's always talking about us, you know, the body of Christ. But there's this other word in Scripture called neighbor, and it's everywhere. And Jesus is always challenging his people to love their neighbor, to be a good Samaritan to their neighbor, to go out and to take good news to their neighbor. I want you to know who your neighbor is this morning. Your neighbor, it's all these other people out there in our world who don't yet know him, who are aching for him, who need more than a hug, all right, in a grocery store, but people who need Jesus Christ. One of the things that's so good for us to realize as the church is all those neighbors out there, they think, most of them think very differently than we think, okay? They talk very, very differently than we talk. Yeah, they do. Amen, brother. Come on, preach it. Bring it from the fifth row. I hear you. They, they also act very differently than we do. They are people who live next door to us, but a lot of them are people that you will never come across in your daily routine, in your daily path of life, unless you and I are open to the Spirit of God leading us there. God wants us to go. He's ready to mobilize a whole lot of people in this room. What we are talking about here, it is the simplest of things, but it is the mission of Jesus Christ. That all of us who are saved by him, we are called by him into a life of rescue, bringing the spiritually lost back from the ledges, sharing the hope of this glorious gospel, helping them to, come, to become people who know Jesus, love Jesus, live for Jesus. Amen. I tell you what, the only thing I can ask you before I pray for you, and Shiloh leads us in a song, that's your hint, Shiloh, is this. Are we willing? Are we willing to be used? Can God interrupt us? Big question for Steve Keller this morning. God, can God inconvenience us? Can God reroute us? Can he do that? Can he do that, church? Can God do this for their sakes? Good, then let's pray. Father, you are amazing. You are glorious. Your heart is love. Your life is a resurrected life. And for us, it is a resurrection life. And so right now, Father, we want to make ourselves available for more than the American dream. Because, Lord, I think all of us are learning in this room that there are many times that the American dream is really an American nightmare. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for resurrection. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the joy of your Holy Spirit, the light of your Holy Spirit, the filling, the baptism of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the power of your living word. And Lord, all of that can be perfectly in place as it always has been 
And we still can be at that place where Jesus looks out and says, oh, the harvest is white, but the laborers are few. Lord, today we're saying we're laborers. Lord, we'll be your laborers. We'll take love. We will take the light of Christ. So God, in these moments, would you work on our willingness? Lord, would you work on our selfishness? Would you work on uh, the, the fact that so many of us just have plans and those plans are set? Father, today, would you just put some new labels on us that say willing, open, available, ready, yes, 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 to anything you say, God. Lord, turn us into a force. Make us into a grassroots movement. Lord, let us be like these disciples who dared to follow, who dared to be used. And as they did this, they lacked for nothing. And they lived a story so big, so rich and so real that we are still telling that story today. Lord, it's time for your church to be what you mean by church. So as we worship, we just say yes to that. And let me just say this before we sing. If you need prayer today, as we close, we've got people in this room who would love to pray with you. They're gonna come right up front. And if you would say today, you know what, I'm a Lydia. I'm close, but I'm not in the kingdom. Let, let, uh, let this be the last day of that. Come up and pray with somebody. If you're enslaved in, in chains and you want freedom, come up and let somebody pray for you. If you need agreement in prayer, maybe someone's getting ready to go through something this week. Maybe you've got some big decisions ahead of you. We would love to pray with you about anything in your life. We'd love to agree with you. So come and take advantage of that and Shiloh will let you guys uh, lead us in a song. Close.